This is an ABC podcast. It's the final sprint to election day, so it's time to brush up on how voting works and answer your commonly asked questions so you know what to do on Saturday. Let's start with the basics. Politics in a democracy can be pretty robust and, let's face it, infinitely flexible. I'm sure I don't need to give you examples. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. You're with Future Tense. The one real no-no, it seems, is trying to win someone over to influence their vote by giving them money or gifts. We call that bribery, of course. Bribery, in any form, is a major problem, according to James D'Angelo at the Congressional Research Institute in the United States. But he argues that the principal driver of corruption in government these days isn't bribery, it's something else. Something just as insidious. It's a practice he's dubbed brewery. James D'Angelo. Brewery is basically the opposite of bribery. So bribery is an exchange. I give you cash or I give you a favor and you do something for me. Brewery is the opposite. So I'm going to take all that cash and that favor to knock you out, to take you out in some way. So I'm going to do favors to your enemy. So I'm going to fund your challenger. or I'm going to run negative ads against you. So I'm going to do everything but give you money or favors. I'm going to try and take you out. And in the American context, quite recently, we saw this, I guess, with Liz Cheney, didn't we, in the Republican Party? Oh, yeah. I will say that I think you see it everywhere you look once you get accustomed to looking for it. But Liz Cheney, of course, was at odds with President Trump, and President Trump didn't have to insert money to take her out. He just started to campaign aggressively against her. And then a lot of groups funded her challenger, who I don't even know the name of, but that challenger raised a ton of money because the challenger was not Liz Cheney. So people donate to people whose names they don't even know because they are called challengers to the person you're trying to take out. And this actually jives with a lot of researcher work. A lot of researchers have always looked for that simple correlation between money donated and votes changed. And researchers continue to find the same thing. There is no correlation because if I'm giving money to someone just to knock someone else out, I don't even care how the challenger votes. I just know I've knocked someone out. And in the process, I've terrified all other legislators who vote or would act like Liz Cheney. Now, I don't know if you follow the impeachment process, but the Senate has to confirm the House impeachment vote. And that Senate vote was proposed by some people to be a secret ballot. And when it became a public vote, there were a number of Republican members of the Senate. One said on the air, if that was a secret vote, Trump would have lost 80 to 20. So you have a Republican senator saying that. He's basically announcing the fact that people are so terrified to vote publicly right? And so it's the fear. It's the fear of getting knocked out by Trump or Trump supporters or all the money that comes in against you if you don't toe the line of the party. And this happens on both sides. So you get it on the Democrats and Republicans. But we just have a number of great salient examples from the right right now. 
a lot of people listening to this would say, look, I understand your point, but where is the line between legitimate campaigning and bribery? Because in a democracy, everyone has a right to criticise other political views and to campaign against people that they don't agree with. That's part of the whole adversarial side of the system, isn't it? Absolutely. So there's a big, you know, freedom of speech concern here. I'm not suggesting, I don't believe I've ever suggested that brewery should be made outright illegal because it's very difficult to draw the line between what might be pure intimidation and sort of milder speech. And we've got lots of history in the United States where people have tried to cross that line. You have the Alien and Sedition Act, going back to John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and their wars in 1800 with massive attack ads. They were they were spending, Thomas Jefferson was secretly funding attack ads on John Adams. So he was playing the same game. Where do you draw the line? I don't know. I don't think that the right approach would be to try to limit speech. Nevertheless, um, you, you believe that bribery, I mean, you describe it as being potentially responsible for most of the corruption within the political system. Correct, correct. It is the main driver. You hear a number of politicians will tell you at least fear is the main driver. Well, what's causing the fear? It's the attacks of of someone else. And you've had state constitutions. So the California Constitution once included language, making it a felony to intimidate members of the government. And they weren't the only ones. So that's intimidation has a long history as being a concern for a way to corrupt government. These days, it's kind of considered just, oh, that's part of the game, right? That's the way everything works. But it's not so clear that it's kosher. It definitely leads to problems. It's, it's corrupting, you know, everything from impeachment votes to tax votes to our police reform to how we deal with incarceration. It's the driving force. But as you indicated, I think earlier, it's a, it's a difficult one to address in a system like ours, a you know, democratic adversarial system. Absolutely. It's a, where you want to be able to speak about the issues. You want to be able to show the negative qualities of your rival, especially if you believe that there are negative qualities. You know, then, of course, there's people who just trump it up and, and push it way too far and then have, you know, much more aggressive forms of intimidation. And you know, a lot of people at this point sort of don't have their heartstrings attached to legislators. I have some fondness for legislators. I do think the job is fairly tough. You know, I've worked on things like climate change and other issues that have mattered a lot to me. And if you're a member of Congress and you might have spent your life trying to reverse policies on any issue, whatever it is, and you start to see a fringe group come out of nowhere and attack you on some fringe idea and put your career at risk, whereby if you lose the next election, the person who replaces you is going to undo everything you've done. Now, those are real fears, right? Your, your entire life goal and all your dreams are now going to be shredded and, and basically turned into the opposite of what you were looking to do. And, and we've seen a number of legislators fall into that pattern. The same is true with gun reform. You know, the NRA spends $20 million a year, for example. They spend about, what, 10% of that in a positive manner where they endorse a candidate and the other 90% is taking members out. And they do that very aggressively in the low budget state primaries. Moving to 
the issue of transparency. I know your institute, the Congressional Research Institute, has a almost counterintuitive, I'd say, understanding of transparency in politics. In fact, one of the taglines for your institute is, and this is the quote, legislative transparency overwhelmingly benefits the powerful. Now, just explain that idea to us. The openness of political votes is there for the purpose of accountability. Well, accountability and transparency are two terms that have sort of been varnished to appear like a save-all in the last 20 to 50 years, but they didn't used to be. So Article 1, Section 5 of the U.S. Constitution suggests that members of Congress should and could vote secretly. Why? Well, the framers themselves talked about it. You had Madison who mentioned that if the voting of members of Congress was open, you'd have hardline partisanship. People wouldn't get along. People wouldn't ask questions. And you had Hamilton talking about how factions, which are special interest groups, would destroy all political discourse. These are uh, the founding fathers in the United States. Right. Hamilton and Madison were two of the important authors of the Constitution and heavy-hitting founding fathers. They weren't alone. Numerous. You know, we when we first started looking at this, I wasn't even aware of Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution. But the data just continued to suggest that increases in transparency were providing enormous increases to lobbying and the ability to terrorize legislators over specific votes that, you know, they might have been pressured or uncomfortable voting for certain things. And those votes are taken out of context and put into negative attack heads and they're annihilated for this. And so we've seen partisanship rise dramatically. With transparency, we've also seen lobbying rise dramatically. What most people don't know is that up until 1970 and, you know, 1975 at the latest, virtually every important congressional committee worked in secret. So John F. Kennedy, he was a senator in the 50s in the United States. All his committee votes, we don't know how he voted, were secret. He was in closed-door sessions with no cameras. And they were passing pretty good legislation back then. You know, America was pretty strong. Partisanship was low. Income inequality was dropping. Numbers of incarcerated individuals were dropping, so much so that by the mid-70s, people were talking about removing prisons in the United States. This was a serious discussion. And then they opened all these votes up. So Nixon signed this big bill, the Legislative Reorganization Act 1970, which forced these committees into the sunshine. And we've seen the results. I mean, massive rise in everything that sort of Hamilton and Madison predicted became true. You get the massive rise in partisanship and the massive rise in lobbying by special interest groups. And we've seen how they vote when they are terrorized by special interest groups. We don't find the counterexamples that secret voting creates all this corruption. It's just the opposite. So yes, less accountability because accountability benefits those with the biggest hammer. The biggest hammer are those with the most power. But I guess the argument um, against that is that people will say those political systems that have less accountability tend to be the dark ones in the world, tend to be dictatorships, that democracies should be much more open and, again, accountable to the people. Well, yeah, I mean, you can obviously go to a, an extreme where you aren't electing your representatives, but it's hard to trade a vote that's secret. 
is really the essence here. Once you allow votes to be bought and sold, right? You in Australia, you guys started this, the Australian ballot. There's a lot of killings after open voting in the 1800s, right? People would be hung, their houses would be burned. A lot of votes were bought. So people would pay up to $25 per vote of an electoral vote in New York City in the 1800s. As soon as they made the Australian ballot, secret ballot in the United States, the thing, vote buying stopped, voter intimidation stopped, not entirely, but <laughs> dropped to almost zero. The same thing would be true of members of Congress. What we've seen is the intimidation and ability to influence elections by money increases when votes are public. There is no data that says that that's not true. That's what we see. James D'Angelo with the notion of brewery and a challenge to rethink when and how transparency should work in politics and government. Our next guest, Renata Avila, is the CEO of the global not-for-profit organisation, the Open Knowledge Foundation. She too promotes the idea of standing back and viewing issues from a different perspective, looking for different insights on familiar topics. Her focus is on the big tech firms and what she calls digital colonialism. The idea is like the same way that in the past, you know, like the Spanish Empire, the British Empire and so on, controlled whole territories and therefore controlled the people and assets and materials and all the wealth coming out of those territories and imposed a way of living and a set of rules. Similarly, when we discuss the digital sphere, the digital sphere is, of course, is a creation, is a new space, let's say, that follows the same pattern of few actors, this time is not necessarily a state, but a small set of companies, basically control the configuration and each and every transaction that is happening there. You use this term data extractivism, which again goes back to that colonial idea, doesn't it, of, of not just entering another country, but also taking out. Taking everything, not, not only taking materials, taking labour, you know, like quick example of this is uh, what is going on. I don't know if you're familiar with, but uh, recently, you know, like a company called OpenAI made available to the public this chat GPT. Um, yes, we covered it on the programme. Exactly. So that's the perfect example. You know, like here we are, all of us training a system, enthusiastically training a system that does not belong to us and not giving only data, giving a lot of attention and time to train a system that would not be necessarily in the public interest, that we do not control, whose rules and configuration we don't know. And it might be like a part of a more sophisticated systems to control everything we do in the future. And that belong to companies. They're far, far removed from our daily lives. And the main colonizers are companies from Silicon Valley in the United States. But it isn't just America, is it? It isn't just Silicon it Valley. It isn't just America. It isn't just America. Like it's very it's just three sets of countries. When I explained the phenomena of digital colonialism, you know, there's a lot of reluctance because to me, you know, colonialism, it was a reality. I saw it walking in the streets of my country, Guatemala. I will see it like in the churches, the architecture, the clothes, the language, everything around me was so imposed 
In Latin America, all our civil codes are the mirror of the Spanish code, for example, all the laws, all the practices and so on. When I discussed this with people from countries that have never been colonized, like very Western countries that have been actually the colonizers, there's a friction, of course. When I sit down with my colleagues from Spain or from France and I tell them, you know, like, you are being colonized by these companies, the reaction is absolutely like, uh, you know, like colonization is something that happens to put people in the global south, basically. Even neocolonization is something that happens to, you know, this hopeless country that cannot put together democracy. And in fact, I think that this time is different because this time the power of technology is concentrated in so few hands that we can talk about the first colonization that is affecting even the super wealthy countries that think that they have some sort of digital sovereignty that is unexistent. Basically, critical infrastructures, critical digital infrastructures of entire countries in the West are run by rules that they do not control anymore and are affected or vulnerable to internal politics or even the vanity of one of these tech emperors. And those tech emperors, well, obviously, there's Silicon Valley in the United States, but in Africa and parts of Asia, there's now also China, isn't there, which is investing yes, a lot yes. of money and time in trying to turn countries in those developing areas toward a Chinese system, a Chinese technological system. You know, like there's two different types of emperors, two different vehicles of empire, let's say, like yeah, one type of emperor, like the one that we are used to in the US, uh, or like coming from the US is this savior. I'm going to fix all the problems of the world. I'm going to give you connectivity. I'm going to like, you know, like connect poor children in Africa, like your classical Superman image. And they meet heads of state. You just see them, you know, like you see them meeting heads of state and actually interfering in policy making and interfering in legislative processes everywhere, as in the colony times. China operates differently. They go on heavy investment on infrastructure. Rather than, you know, charming the politician, they give infrastructure to the country that otherwise the country could not afford. It's very similar, you know, like uh, when the railways were built in India. Like it is basically giving the railways that no one else will invest otherwise. Same with the 5G technologies. And so it's different ways of operating, same purpose, to extract everything they need to build the next generation of technologies. Now, some people would say that the response to that, that type of exploitation, if you like, that type of colonization, as you describe it, is to have stronger global regulations for digital technology, stronger trade treaties, perhaps, governing the way this technology is spread. But you see problems with that as well, don't you? Absolutely. You know, like uh, I don't remember the last time that regulation picks tamed, really tamed a superpower. It serves to balance, you know, like at a lower level and a local level, you know, for example, local standards of food or security in the highways and this, this kind of things. But if you think of the superpowers, if you look at the lobby groups in Brussels, the leading lobbies are like big tech companies. You know, like I have been part of some delegations to the World Trade Organization, and there's only one model that is being pushed forward. And the model is uh, something that sounds very harmless and very logical. It you know, sounds like freedom, free data flows, which means restrictions to countries 
to regulate obstacles for private companies to take all the data away. And of course, the reality is when we authorize a free flow of data, what is missing from the conversation is the fact that the data is only flowing in one direction, out. <laughs> so yeah. what are the necessary steps then that need to be taken to ensure that countries don't get trapped by these big digital players and that they can kind of develop their own systems and have, I suppose, what you call digital sovereignty. How do you go about doing that? Well, three simple steps that are very difficult politically. I mean, we have been trying it since technologies became accessible to people. The first is to open innovation for local innovation. At the moment, we have a system of patents, a brutal system of patents that gives light to these companies. So that basically what they do is they block the innovation by getting lots of patents. That's the first thing. The second, we need to make people aware that it's a public policy problem. It's a public law problem. We are discussing here about the health of little children and teenagers, mental health, you know, mental health issues. We're discussing about the health of our democracy. And we are discussing as well, abandoning the logic of mega-sized data centers. We could like, you know, host our data locally, have it more accountable, be a source of jobs for local people instead of everything centralized far away from our jurisdictions. And the third thing, we do not necessarily need many of the technologies that these companies offer. Of course, digital access to knowledge and have any book that you can imagine at the tip of your finger is wonderful. We don't want to lose that part. What we want is decentralized structures in the public interest. We need to think about digital public infrastructure and digital commons. I mean, if you think how much uh, a country invests in a highway, for example, in a bridge, let's think the same way. Let's think big locally, providing key infrastructures that will enable and improve the life of people by using state of the art technologies instead of depending on one size fits all technologies that we do not govern or control, but we pay for. Renata Avila. CEO of the Open Knowledge Foundation, and she was speaking to me there from London. How to regulate artificial intelligence is a thorny issue. Self-regulation in the world of tech doesn't have a particularly good track record. So could a system of audits work? Could regular audits of a company's algorithms, say, help prevent AI systems acting in a harmful or discriminatory way? AI is in every headline these days, and with that comes discussions over how to regulate it. But beyond things like ChatGPT, these algorithmic decision-making systems are increasingly used in key social functions like hiring and firing, housing, benefits allocation, education. Julia Trehu, a program manager with the Digital Innovation and Democracy Initiative at the German Marshall Fund. Even if we're a long way from robots taking over the world, the use of these AI systems in these contexts poses really important questions about the organization of society and distribution of power and resources. And there are real concerns about these systems. Are they trained on biased data? Do the results reflect the biases around sensitive categories like race, gender, disability in the training data? And is there recourse for people who have been harmed by a system's decisions? And there are unanswered questions about whether and how these systems are even working as intended. So in this context, we're seeing calls for auditing of these systems and an accompanying industry is rising and 
there's a problem in that there's very little agreement on the definition of an audit or who gets to call themselves an auditor. And there's a risk in that by requiring algorithmic audits without a clear framework or definition, the audit could give a kind of false assurance of compliance. And this would give a misleading or incomplete assessment of the system and lead to what we call audit washing of potentially problematic or even illegal practices. And by audit washing, think the AI equivalent of greenwashing, an audit that's potentially worse than no audit at all. Julia Trehu recently co-authored a paper on AI auditing and its potential. And she's identified four key questions that need to be asked at the design stage. For algorithmic audits to be reliable, we really need to tighten the definition around the key questions of who, what, why, and how. So the who is about the auditor's qualifications. And this addresses the question of who gets to call themselves an auditor and any necessary certification or accreditation. And key information about the person or organization expected to conduct the audit needs to be clear, including qualifications and conditions of independence, if any, their access to data, what kind of audit trail they need to provide. And there are different types of audits, self-audits, independent audits, government audits. They have different features, different sources of legitimacy. For example, if an audit is an internal one conducted by the entity, it needs to be clear about how this audit fits into a larger accountability scheme and put guardrails in place to prevent audit washing. The what is about the type and scope of audit. So even just taking a first example of a technical audit, this might focus on the development of a model or system outputs and cover different periods. But the range of audit scope expands further than that because technical components are just one piece of how this technology works in a sociopolitical context. Audits are really not just about examining lines of code. They need to look at the entire context in which an algorithmic decision-making system was deployed. And sometimes it's about thinking about the human decision to deploy AI in the first place or the data used to train it. So audit provisions need to be clear about their scope. And sometimes this can mean interviewing personnel and reviewing business models and asking why an algorithmic system was deployed. And if an audit looks at different points in the life cycle of a system, it will necessarily see different things. So there needs to be clarity about what is being looked at in the audit. And third, the why is about the audit's objectives. And again, these won't always look the same. Sometimes the goals are about compliance with a narrower set of legal standards, sometimes with specific sectoral regulation or data protection standards or broader ethical goals. But to be able to compare audit results, you need to really define a why. And finally, fourth, the how is about clearly defining audit standards. And a well-defined how will help with the development of audit certification mechanisms. And it's really important for the legitimacy of the audit and for protecting against audit washing. And so across these four areas, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, and there will be different types of audits for different types of systems. High-risk systems will be audited differently than lower-risk ones. But for audits to be effective, they need to answer these key questions. So those four questions, who, what, why, how, can help us to at least put some sort of accountability into the process. But is what we really need international agreements on AI audit standards, particularly if they're going to be written into law? So there is international coordination happening on AI. For example, the EU-US Trade and Technology Council released a roadmap on trustworthy AI. And this type of cross-pollination and coordination and 
commitment to joint principles and values around AI general, I think should be seen as positive. At the same time, approaches to AI globally are still quite divergent. In the near term, at least, we're likely to see more of a sort of iterative process. I think financial auditing can be a, an illustrative example here. It sort of emerged out of the Great Depression and additional standards have been put in place following successive crises like Enron. And in general, we should also remember that audits are tools within a broader agenda or process. And ideally, they should not just be after the fact cleanup tools, but audits are one piece of sort of broader substantive goals for AI systems generally. And I think it's important not to lose sight of that broader vision and the very political and contested question of what the role should be of AI and algorithmic systems, what kind of role they should play in society generally. And audits are one means of working towards those goals. Julia Trehu from the German Marshall Fund. Julia is the program manager for their Digital Innovation and Democracy Initiative. That's all we have time for. You've been listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell, and my co-producer is Karen Savanovitz. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.